0: 26 minutes after 8pm, Mr. Shop Stewart's Corner here on Metro FM Talk, where every Monday we take a look and shine a spotlight uh, on uh, the shop floor and what the latest coming out of the lives of working people, both here at home and elsewhere. And tonight we head out to China, uh, where an iPhone plant operated by Foxconn has uh, certainly over the last few months or so, uh, since around November, I understand, or even earlier, around October, um, uh, successive waves of protests as workers were fleeing uh, that uh, iPhone factory. And, uh, you know, this story, I guess, in many ways, the intersection point of so many different developments. One being the, you know, very stringent zero COVID approach of the uh, Xi Jinping government out in China. And I think the second really being around uh, the. Um, responsibility of certain human rights violations in global supply chains um, and the implications uh, that that has for both the firms in some of these supply chains who are lead firms, uh, who we are all familiar with. If you use an iPhone or any Apple device, you would certainly know who the lead firm is. Um, And also, I guess, what type of response it is ideally supposed to trigger from us as consumers who are at the tail end Uh, I guess, of this particular chain and uh, joined tonight uh, to talk about uh, this in particular in relation, of course, to the latest coming out of uh, Zhengzhou, joined by writer-at-large at at the Financial Mail, Anne Crotty. Anne, good evening to you and welcome.
1: Thanks, Ervonga. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. And maybe just give us some of the context of what effectively uh, unfolded and gave rise to worker discontent that spilled over into open protests in a country where we know protest is uh, really, I guess, monitored and uh, restricted severely in many instances. W- what happened at this factory uh, that, uh, I guess, has uh, had many in the world talking over the last few months?
1: They, well, I mean, the one thing is there's <clears throat> the factory is huge. I mean, 200,000 um, people work there at peak season, which is from about September through to uh, end of January. Mm. <clears throat> so, you can imagine things are fairly tense anyway, and it's a uh, it's a very high-stress job. It's not, it's not a terribly clever job. It's, it's just mm. kind of screwing things together. Um, and then, I mean, sorry, that sounds uh, really too simplistic, but it's, it's very um, intense. Uh, you know, the, the production lines, are they're overseen, and you, you can't actually walk away from your job, even to go to the toilet, without getting permission. And sure. if you do go to, want to go to the toilet, you've got to kind of make up the time you get a one-hour break, I think, in a in a, a ten-hour day. It's, mm. it's incredibly intense work. But adding to it last year was Xi Jinping's uh, zero COVID policy. So any time there was a, a flare-up of COVID, <clears throat> uh, there was, you know, the, the tension screw. I mean, people were carted off and put into isolation, um, and then and it got particularly bad around. I think it was October. When there was a flare-up of COVID in the in the in the city nearby, um, so I mean, people were just primarily well, they were forced to actually to stay in kind of camping facilities in within the compound, um, kind of hut-like facilities. Um, yeah, so nothing, um, and and take tests daily. So I'm not really conducive conducive to a nice work atmosphere. Mm. I mean, a lot of people. Uh, just you know, ran for it. They, they. I don't. Know, I mean, I don't know if you call seeing those horrific pictures of people climbing over barbed wire fences to escape from from this comp- compound.
0: And and I guess you know, it, it it comes at a very interesting time where I speak about the lead firm here in the case of Apple, which is from a market which certainly since the time of Trump has been calling for a return of a lot of the factory jobs that were offshored to places like China, Taiwan you know, Thailand and many other places. Um, And when, I guess, you know, uh, workers in the U.S. and maybe in other parts of the world see these kinds of developments and uh, even the firm itself, Apple, I mean, where do we apportion responsibility for all of the things that have gone wrong uh, if one considers the framework of decent work, of labor standards and so on? Uh, Because in many ways, I guess, the lead firm benefits from, the productivity associated with these slave-like conditions, uh, while at the same time getting massive, you know, um, margins on the back of selling what in essence is a premium product.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, where we take have to take some of that blame. I'm I'm speaking to you on an iPhone. Mm. I I wrote the story on uh, on a Mac. you know? Um. And I I mean I didn't realise until I read the Rest of the World um article. How bad it was, and and then of course the other thing is that um, you know it's not slave labor in the sense that you know people voluntarily go and work there and they get paid very nicely. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the conditions are, I mean, really appalling. And and I mean, I mean Tim Cook, I think is, uh, um, I don't know, um, probably one of the worst in the sense of being a human being, I don't know how he's managed to escape without being tarred by, uh, by these work practices. Mm. You know, I mean, um, we, we're all up in arms about uh, the, you know, Xinjiang and the, um, the in Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, and, I mean, as you say, you know, you talk, the line between slave conditions and free conditions are, are pretty thin, um, although I'm not sure if you're getting paid uh, you can walk out. I mean, everybody who works at at the at the Apple factory, and it is an Apple factory. Mm-hmm. I mean, Foxconn uh, are there are their agents, but you know, without Apple, Foxconn wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they do it voluntarily. Um, I I'm not sure. I'm not sure if if uh, I mean the share Apple shareholders should be putting pressure on Tim Cook. Um, Apple consumers should be putting pressure on them And I don't see
0: any of that yeah, anywhere.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, um, these guys have
0: uh, And 40 production sites In coastal and inland China And I guess while the pay might be good These conditions of work Far from being economic or anything like that um, To what degree are they Representative of many of Apple's offshore sites Or sites operated by some of their suppliers?
1: I don't think um, any supplier will be able to get away with conditions that they can get away with in China. And I think that that, I think Tim Cook probably realizes that mm. that is his problem, you know, in, in, in the next 10 whatever years. Because, you know, they're now talking about, not they're talking about moving out of China and that's got nothing to do with people, who, you know, finally being squeamish by, by these appalling work conditions. It's got to do with, Um, U.S. finally saying, hang on, we need to actually get, uh, you know, kind of loosen our ties with China. Um, and that's put them under pressure to find Mm. alternative sources, but they're not going to find anything as uh, malleable as what China presents for them. Mm. I mean, they're they're moving to India, but, you know, I I think India is too sort of chaotically democratic. Which is which is great mm. I mean you know, it's unfortunate if you're a businessman but you know it I think it's a better system to have yeah. although you' be for the economy it's maybe not as good but for society it, it's probably better
0: yeah now now we also know that th- many of these workers have been producing the uh, iPhone 14 pro and the iPhone 14 pro max and I'm quite interested I mean uh, certainly and you, you you speak about this in your piece around how we reconcile the seemingly divergent, narratives around the lead firm i mean all of us when we think of apple and we think of it in the context of the person of steve jobs think of it as this very maverick you know uh i guess hipster uh, subversive and i would even venture to say progressive and i use that in inverted commas firm right yeah. i mean it comes yeah. from a very particular uh counter-cultural moment uh, in american history and um you know, um, I mean, to what degree does this experience then sort of jar against some of those more progressive or subversive roots uh, of this it, company?
1: I mean, it's such a good point. I mean, it completely jars against uh, against the the image that Steve Jobs wanted to portray of himself. Um, I mean, he picked Tim Cook because you know the, Apple has been enormously successful. Um, you know, after, since um, Steve Jobs. Entirely because of Tim Cook, and entirely because Tim Cook identified China as the best place for for manufacturing. Now, I'm I don't, I'm not sure if, if if Steve Jobs would have been appalled, you know, for all the reasons that you've just highlighted. You know, he saw himself as a hippie, you know, uh, counterculture, and and you know a, a sort of decent, a good person, and. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he knew what Tim Cook goes on to, and I think he chose him well, possibly for that reason, which is deeply, deeply cynical, isn't it? I mean, just, Apple just controls the narrative. It's amazing. Hmm. amazing.
0: Yeah, it speaks volumes about, I guess, uh, what people have often spoken about as the manufacturing of consent or the manufacturing of particular narratives, uh, which often, I guess, don't correspond with uh, what happens under the bonnet and what we see happening in the coalface of production. Um, I mean, just to the point you're making about shifting, um, you know, sites away from China for geopolitical reasons, I might add, because it seems the screws are turning even harder on the part of many companies whose supply chains are very China-centric. I mean, to what degree does that shift and change the business model of a player like Apple? Um, And ultimately, I guess, the type of earnings reports they might be giving to shareholders?
1: I don't think Apple's going to manage to make that shift. Um, and I mean, because they've been so cynical for the past, uh, you know, maybe two decades about their relationship with China, I think they'll somehow they're going to wangle um, a, a China solution to this. Mm. They may, um, they may kind of uh, uh, keep it keep it quieter, you know. But they're not going. To, they certainly will not be able to transfer much production out of China. Um, and and you know India, I don't think India is a solution at all. India mm. will be able to produce some, but maybe ten or fifteen percent. So, they're, I mean, they've got such a close relationship with Xi Jinping. I mean, mm. some some people actually think that. um I mean, I mean, it's not that's not bad, but it's it's just so all of this is is, is really shadowy. You mm. know, nobody we don't it's not openly discussed. I mean, I was listening to a podcast, but you know, some months ago. <clears throat> about what the Chinese government are prepared to do for Apple. I mean, this is moving, talking about moving tens of thousands of people around the country mm. to work in Apple factories. Wow. Um, uh, oh, sorry, I should say Foxconn factory. Uh, and they are Foxconn. but Foxconn is a separate entity which mm. probably suits Apple more. It's just, I don't know, you know, the people who buy Apple products, such as me. Um, and myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And need to become more aware. And I don't know how we... I mean, yeah. Apple, Apple's also got a big uh, tax case mm. in front of the EU. You know, it's—I don't know how they get away with this squeaky clean image. It's mm. a, such clever marketing.
0: Look, I think if we as consumers and could mount some form of resistance here, it would probably be one of the largest uh, consu- examples of globalized consumer advocacy that has certainly been seen in recent history. Um, and maybe I think that you know that leads me to my next question, which is. You know, we're speaking a lot here about, I guess, China enabling via all manner of economic rents and even, you know, uh, social coercion, the profitability of Foxconn and ultimately the profitability of the lead firm Apple. Uh, But in China as well, I mean, this model of becoming the factory of the world, uh, the stitcher of the world has also hit its own internal contradictions. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party speaks about uh, this idea of common prosperity, dealing with income inequality and the maldistribution of income in China because they see it as one of the biggest risks in a country with as many people as China has. Um, I mean, what do you make of that narrative and how that might feature in how we understand this uh, case of Foxconn?
1: I think. I think. Um, I mean, when Xi Jinping first started talking about the common prosperity, I thought that was that was great, you know. Mm. And also locking up, you know, uh, the occasional uh, chief executive Teguru. or you know top guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and and now, um, I mean, some uh, one one of the top financial guys is, has disappeared, and that's what happens—they disappear. They don't get arrested; they just disappear. Um, I mean, I don't know if, uh, if anyone's seen uh, Jack Ma uh, yeah. very recently, but I think I think he was spotted But you know, in a way, you, that seems like fair. Oh no, I shouldn't say fair, but reasonable enough treatment for people who have obviously. Uh, being corrupt. I mean I wouldn't like to see some of the corrupt people in South Africa Ooh, I would a,
0: relish the prospect. Say that. I would relish the prospect.
1: Yeah. Instead of having to go through the whole legal system uh, you know, which takes years and years and years and, and you know, these people are so corrupt they use the legal system, you know, to beat us up, you know, the mm. But um I mean I do if, if Xi Jinping could Develop the um, common prosperity program. I, I think, I, I think, I do think that <clears throat> China could then present an alternative to you know to the American way of life. An mm. uh, American way of life being you know whoever's richest is is the best. Yeah. Person. yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean that's that's I think I really think the world needs um, an alternative to that. To the free market capitalism mm. model that's sold by um, by by America, uh, it, it just you know doesn't seem to be coming out of China yet. Yeah,
0: yeah. Look, we clamour and we all hope for that um, alternative to the financialized and globalising capitalist paradigm. And uh, long may that hope continue. Anne, a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Lovely. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: And Crotty, right at large, out at the financial mail. And uh, yeah, what do you make of that? Just made me want to look at the iPad and the phone just in a different way. Yeah, you might want to comment on that. And of course, our own complicity in that uh, global supply chain, which reproduces not only capital for shareholders across the world, but also reproduces misery and human suffering. Now, uh, let's shift our attention back, I guess, to the disaster story. And as Pamanda Kubula here sharing a, a message with me out on Facebook saying, uh, the uh, problem of uh, terracing uh, can be mitigated through strategic terracing. The Nelson Mandela Bay, uh, mayor has, successful, has access to a scientifically proven method of capturing water plus or minus 1,000 uh, cubic meters or liters in trenches as uh, the rain lands in high altitude areas hoping to communicate with you on this as it can be traced back to Kemetic and Egyptian irrigation methods that built empires. So yeah, Uh, I don't know what strategic terracing is, but uh, certainly something I'd like to read up on. Uh, So do share with us uh, some of your thoughts uh, insofar as uh, our capability as a society to preemptively and presciently plan for flood or any adverse weather events. You know, South Africa is so interesting. In Kabecha, there's a drought and i also heard uh, weather warning earlier on today about you know heat conditions in eteguin not too far there's flooding so i don't know because it does mean this idea of i'm not sure you know uh, about some of the continual work in between declarations of disasters as trigger events um, and I'd love to hear from you. If you work in a disaster center, even at a district level, tell us, in between the declarations of localized and even national disasters, what do you do? You know where, where I come from? There, there, there's a nice badge I often think about. In a la badge, the badge got disaster. I don't know if it's a sort of a national or a provincial thing. But again, babu be like, kanye ba,
2: Good evening, Ayabonga, and good evening to the Metro FM listeners. You guys have just had an interesting conversation with the people from the disaster management. I just wanted to figure out something. How is it possible that a country like South Africa is a drought-ridden place or does not have water, but then a country like Dubai or countries in the United Arab Emirates have access? to drinkable water in excess, in abundance, but then they are located in a a desert. I'm asking this because there's been looming um, water crisis in Port Elizabeth for the past seven years, and right now they are implementing this water cuts Mm. into the locations except for the suburbs. Mm. So how is it possible that we don't have water, but then there there are these desert places that have water we do not have water. Like, what's wrong with our tiny system? I know, I don't understand, my brother.
0: And you know, the saddest part, if I can add something extra there. So by rainfall, I think we probably get more rain than uh, Dubai, or the United Arab Emirates. We get more rain. But they have drinking water there. So so in a way, the issue is not really, for me, about rainfall. Uh, that's what even, you know, when we've spoken on this platform to the Water Research Commission, they tell us, look, guys, the, the issue here is around... You know, managing your drainage to not have all manner of water losses, doing proper water harvesting, trying to mitigate evaporation, all of those scientific things. And by the way, the Water Research Commission in South Africa, that's why I was asking Dr. Elias about the interface with our institutions in our national system of innovation, our think tanks, our research institutes, our universities. South Africa has some of the best renowned world beating patents for water functions, right? I mean, I remember they were talking to us about a flush system at some stage. You know, they were saying South Africa has the anomaly of wanting, you know, everyone wants a flushing toilet. And yeah, say flushing toilet because, you know, sati, it has a long drop. We want that. Now, but there's a risk to that in a water-scarce country because you are flushing drinkable water. You know? Um, and they are saying, look, we have all manner of innovations in the country, but... The issue is how do you commercialize those interventions? And one part of doing it, you know, a strategic developmental states uses its buying power. It uses the fact that every year it's going to go and need to install uh, all manner of lime toilets or these new age long drop or what they call VIP toilets, ventilated improved pit toilets. So that when they go to my village there in Tugatol, uh, isn't that They then know that we have this innovation and the one place where we will demonstrate this innovation is through a backlog eradication program that will be rolled out at scale so that we learn. So that youngsters going through our universities will do PhDs, looking at this matter of how it is that we deal with questions of reticulation of water, harvesting of water, both for personal use and also for commercial use because this is DRZ to That's what we need and 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 i think for me that needs to probably be lifted up a lot higher you know it's the same in the debate on electricity some among us <laughs> <professor>, <laughs> and was a professor they come out and they say is your electricity better is your electricity better than when you were under a party now i mean I, you can go check there on, on my timeline i, I now i'm if you was that yes it's definitely better because in daos felakos i mean only got electricity in 2012. And that was even better than what I call cloth wick lanterns, which is a very nice and sophisticated way to talk about a paraffin lamp. So we've come a long way. Notwithstanding all of the problems we have now, we've come a long way. And I think we must not you know, in the eye of the storm, be browbeaten by apartheid apologists who will cloud our eyes so that we don't even see in the eye of the storm some of the things that we have as benefits, as advantage, as is Kobo to try and get us out of here.
3: Good evening. Good evening, Machai. I hope I think we're still going to have a problem in South Africa floods in South Africa they are very ignorant I see it on daily basis from a job from ellux where I say people especially the people about tennis we don't have a problem with tennis but they must also try to keep the environment to clean and ama drain for what they are supposed to use for example, mm. I tennis, to for, to use. for example Mm. But the critter amma left over as bad as voley it rain. Mm. Expecting what next time amans as warm. Abu is drain ziplock, as a bushel, everyone. A you can't drive around in voila my net. I and a loxin amansi. I was a ham Remember these drains, zenzwe pavel is a good plan. What amans I am, they must release the water. So abantu the ignorant. It's not like they don't know. What I so wish just people can change them for to show Sure, Tumza.
0: Sure, No, I think you spot on. And you know, for me, the fact that. So, I think we are correct, Yoba City, Kwababandu, Batengi Sai, that uh, it is your responsibility to do it. But similarly, I think it is a failure at a local level. Kwa a local economic development. Part of the failure is the inability to have a spatial vision for what shape and form informality and informal markets take on in a city. I mean, one of the most staring examples that came comes to mind when, Atums, as you were talking, you know, we are doing some research um, probably uh, just under a year ago. I'm tired. And, uh, you know, just walking, I mean, from one building to the next and so on. And I remember it was lunchtime, midweek. And uh, if there's anything, you know, I, I really respect are very supportive of informal traders who are selling food, right? So, kweza you know, pangako, you know, and so on where you can find Now, part of the issue there is we haven't resolved a few questions. The one question is where do these entrepreneurs, if we want them to scale their operations, but also to diversify what it is they sell. What storage, common storage assets are we giving them? So so that Umama doesn't have to keep on buying meat that she has to sell at lunch every day, but she can buy in bulk and store it so that she can negotiate price discounts that will give her better margins. Sharp, tick that box. The other thing we don't do well is a strategic waste management perspective that says, Mama, we know Utengsi cheap, and Because you are selling chips of potatoes, you know, potato peels and so on. How do we create a system where we will invest in drums or anything where you can dispose of your material? That material will be taken by waste entrepreneurs in the area, incinerated or burnt where it has to be quashed and so on, so that it can then be used in circular economy fashion to create other products. We were speaking about impact earlier. One of the things impact does is they have a facility in Bumalanga that takes recycled material, reconverts it into some of these container boards or any other form of material that they have as a packaging business. Now, omas palabe to need to be able to think in very in innovative ways that say, how do I assist this cohort of informal traders who are selling food? So I need to give them storage that makes sure that they're stuff that needs refrigeration, stuff that needs to be contained and so on. And even what happens once they close shop, so that when they come back tomorrow, they don't have to now carry all their pots and the gas burners and everything else. But in addition to that, from a waste management perspective, that there's no incentive for them to throw those things alongside their operations, which is what is happening at the moment, blocking roads, blocking drains, and effectively leading to a hazardous situation. So, so, so it's easy for us to just say but place yourself in the shoes of somebody who has to cook every day and there's no specified area for them to dispose of that waste because when the city was defined, was designed it had never been designed with informal trade in mind because it had never been designed with African people in mind. And that is the problem. Sure, sure. I work my brother. Sure, sure. Who is it from? Who yes, is
2: Yeah, I just want to highlight as we bring up a new week of our discussion yes, sir. with Metro FM Talk.